Hey, it's Guy here. So we all have something we struggle with, right? We all have personal challenges and weaknesses or what seem like limitations. But what is it that makes some of us keep trying and striving to overcome despite the odds? Well, on today's episode, we explore stories of turning weaknesses into strengths. It's called Overcoming, and it originally aired in January of 2014. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that... Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. Guy Raz. And on today's show, how some people, despite everything that was thrown in front of them, overcame and figured out how to turn what most people think of as limitations into sources of strength. Which is exactly what happened to Temple Grandin, who was different from the moment she was born. Well, at two and a half, I was taken into the neurologist because I had no speech and I would sit and rock and dribble sand to my hands and was not behaving like the little girl the same age next door. And after that trip to the neurologist in 1949, the doctors told her mom that Temple had brain damage, that she would never live a normal life. And it would be another year and a half before she uttered a single word. And even then, she was destructive. She didn't like to be touched. And as she got older, she would fixate obsessively on just three things. Model rockets, electronics, and riding horses. That was it. Model rockets. Pretty much. Electronics. All she cared about. And everything to do with the horse barn. But the most unusual thing about Temple Grandin was something she didn't even realize made her different. Well, I sometimes just couldn't figure out why I just didn't fit in. You know, um, it's been an interesting journey for me as I've learned how not everybody thinks in pictures. I mean, you give me a keyword, I see pictures. Everywhere I go. Everywhere I go. And and it's not just random pictures she sees in her mind, but very specific pictures. Like when her mom would say, stop, like stop doing something. Temple would see a stop sign in her head, and not just any stop sign, but a very specific stop sign at a specific intersection that she'd seen 10 years earlier. You want to find out how it works? Give me a key word. I'll tell you how my mind accesses information. And don't give me something boring like house or car or something that I can see in this room where I'm at now. So if I say the word dragon, you think of of a, like, specific... Dragon? I can tell you, uh, yes. I'm seeing... I went on a wonderful trip one time to Disney Imagineering. The cute little... um, He's actually a dinosaur, but he looks like a dragon. Then he talks to you. He's really cute. I'm seeing... um, a dragons in um, How to Train Your Dragon movie. I'm now, um, you know, seeing Peter, Paul, and Mary singing, you know, Puff the Magic Dragon. Just one after another, like a slideshow. That's right. They just flash up like pictures. Now, a um, little Jackie Paper. Now I've got an association of a ream of paper in my office, and now I'm seeing uh, the printer's jammed up and I'm unjamming, and then the cartridge ran out, so now I'm taking it out and I'm furiously shaking it, because if I find if I shake HP cartridges, I can get 100 more copies out of it. Now when I take it out, it tricks the printer into thinking that it's getting changed, and it's not. (laughs) So this, all of this from the word dragon. Now remember, this is all coming from a brain that doctors in the 1950s thought was damaged. It would take several more years until they diagnosed her with autism. And Temple would eventually go on to revolutionize the cattle industry in North America because of her brain, because the way it worked, despite all of the challenges and obstacles that came her way. Temple Grandin picks up the story from the TED stage. I think I'll start out and just talk a little bit about what exactly autism is. Autism is a very big continuum that goes from very severe, the child remains nonverbal, all the way up to brilliant scientists and engineers. And I actually feel at home here because there's a lot of autism genetics here. You wouldn't have any, um, 
it's a continuum of traits. When does a nerd turn into, you know, Asperger, which is just mild autism? I mean, Einstein and Mozart and Tesla would all be probably diagnosed as autistic spectrum today. Now, the thing is, the visual thinker is just one kind of mind. You see, the autistic mind tends to be a specialist mind. Good at one thing, bad at something else. Here are the types of thinking. Photorealistic visual thinkers like me. Pattern thinkers, music and math minds. Some of these oftentimes have problems with reading. You also will see these kind of problems with um, kids that are um, dyslexic. You'll see these different kinds of minds. And then there's a verbal mind. They know every fact about everything. The thing is, you can make a mind to be more of a thinking and cognitive mind, or a mind can be wired to be more social. And what some of the research now has shown in autism is there may be extra wiring back here in the really brilliant mind, and we lose a few social circuits here. It's kind of a trade-off between thinking and social. And then you can get into the point where it's so severe, you're going to have a person that's going to be nonverbal. Okay, so in Temple's case, the extra wiring in her brain, it turned out to be this particular genius for understanding cattle. One time, she was visiting a cattle ranch where the cows would freak out and stampede every time they'd be pushed through these channels on the way to the slaughterhouse. And cattle get afraid of a lot of little visual distractions that people tend to not notice. Shadows. They don't like to go into a building that's too dark. Reflections on water that's moving. And at this particular place, the cattle were afraid of the flag. There was a flag on a flagpole by it. The problem well, was a flapping flag. flag. Cows flag. don't like the combination of rapid movement and high contrast. It makes them freak out. And Temple's autism helped her see that. The point is is that people just don't see things. You see, this is where you need visual thinkers like me. Let's go back to someone like Steve Jobs. He wasn't an engineer, he was an artist. Took a calligraphy class, and um, he designed all those user interfaces for the smartphone. Engineers had to figure out how to make it work. But the artist designed the smartphone interface. You know, we need the different kinds of minds. And with her mind, Temple Grandin revolutionized the cattle industry. She designed a geometric series of channels and pathways that encouraged cows to stay calm on the way to the slaughterhouse. And more than half of all slaughterhouses in North America use her humane invention. And so the way Temple was able to overcome what could have been a limitation, her autism, was with help help from people who nurtured her obsessions and let her autism become a source of strength. I view myself as a cattle scientist first, an autistic second. And I fight to not let autism totally take over my life. I don't think it's good when nine-year-olds, smart nine-year-olds walk up to me and they want to tell me about their autism. Why don't you tell me about astronomy? Why don't you tell me that you're learning computer programming, that you're doing art? I'd much rather look at your art than talk about autism. Why do you think that you were able to overcome what, you know, in so many other circumstances would have been debilitating, like, like the odds were against you? Well, I had very good, my mother very early on, my science teacher, I had, you know, went to a very good elementary school. The boarding school I went to, Mr. Patey, the headmaster, you know, he was a wise old man. He let me work in that horse barn for two years and not study. But he wouldn't let me come a recluse in my, in my room. He'd pull me out. I had to go to dinner. I had to go to chapel. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't just sit up in my room. And there were some good people in the cattle industry. But I was always encouraged to develop my ability. Another thing that helped me as an adult was uh, taking antidepressant medication. And because us visual thinkers, even the ones that are not autistic, tend to get a lot of problems with anxiety. A little Prozac in the morning stops the anxiety. Do you think you, you got lucky, you know, with, with like all those people who encouraged you and, and supported you? Oh, I, I mean, if I, hadn't had, if I hadn't had those people, I was the kind of kid that in the 50s, since I was totally nonverbal at age three, they just threw away an institution. And I just loved making stuff. And that was always encouraged. You know, my mother's very artistic. You know, I was given books on perspective drawing. You got to develop the kids' strengths. And then I wasn't allowed to just... Uh, you know, uh, sit and watch TV all day. That just wasn't allowed. 
You know, all I wanted to do was draw pictures of horses when I was little. Mother said, well, let's do a picture of something else. They've got to learn how to do something else. Let's say the kid's fixated on Legos. Let's get them working on building different things. Like if the kid loves race cars, let's use race cars for math. Let's figure out how long it takes a race car to go a certain distance. In other words, use that fixation in order to motivate that kid. That's one of the things we need to do. What can visual thinkers do when they grow up? They can do graphic design, all kinds of stuff with computers, photography, uh, industrial design. The, the pattern thinkers, they're the ones that are going to be your mathematicians, your software engineers, your computer programmers, all of those kinds of jobs. And then you've got the word minds. They make great journalists. And they also make really, really good stage actors. Because the thing about being autistic is I had to learn social skills like being in a play. You just kind of just have to learn it. And we need to be working with these students. And this brings up mentors. You know, my science teacher was not an accredited teacher. He was a NASA space scientist. Now, some states now are getting it to where if you have a degree in biology or a degree in chemistry, you can come into the school and teach, you know, biology or chemistry. We need to be doing that. Another thing that can be very, very, very successful is there's a lot of people that may have retired from, you know, working in the software industry. And they can teach a kid, and it doesn't matter if what they teach them is old. Because what you're doing is you're lighting the spark. You're getting that kid turned on. And you get them turned on, then you'll learn all the new stuff. And if you bring them in for internships in your companies, the thing about the autism Asperger kind of mind, you've got to give them a specific task. Don't just say design new software. You've got to tell them something a lot more specific. Well, we're designing a software for a phone, and it has to do some specific thing, and it can only use so much memory. That's the kind of specificity you need. Well, that's the end of my talk, and I just want to thank everybody for coming. It was great to be here. Do you feel like your, your autism was something that you had to overcome, or, or was it something that other people had to overcome, you know, in, in terms of their perception? I never even thought about that. I was too hung up on, on hmm. uh, going out and doing stuff with cattle. You know, parents will say to me, well, what, do you do, what can you do for kids for autism? Well, if you've got a kid that's three years old not talking, it's tons of early intervention. That's the same. Develop strengths. Build up on what they are good at. See, this is the problem you have on the high end of the spectrum. Some of these kids are getting labeled gifted. I go over and I do talks at gifted and talented conferences. They're the same little geeky kids. And I go over to the autistic conference and the guy's hung up on autism and playing video games all day. You see, people get locked into it verbally. I'm a visual thinker, so I don't see the words. I see the kids. Temple Grandin speaks and writes about autism and cattle all over the world. You can see her talk at ted.npr.org. Our show today is all about overcoming. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to National Car Rental. National is a fan of big ideas, like the ones you've been listening to. And it's why when you sign up for complimentary membership in the Emerald Club, you can skip the counter and choose any car in the aisle, even an upgrade, without paying extra. Go National and go like a pro. Learn more at nationalcar.com NPR. Thanks also to Target Red Card. With Target Red Card, you save 5% on every tech upgrade at Target and Target.com, from rose gold phones to Bluetooth speakers, plus free two-day shipping on hundreds of thousands of items. Save 5% and get more connected. Red Card gets you more. Learn more in-store or online. Restrictions apply. See Target.com slash Red Card for details. Happy Halloween, nerds. This week, don't miss a special batch of Halloween episodes from NPR's new daily science podcast, Shortwave. We're going to talk about parasites that take over and control the brains of their hosts. Yes. Much like a podcaster does to their audience. (laughs) Listen and subscribe to Shortwave from NPR. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, stories of overcoming. People who were never supposed to make it, never supposed to get past their limitations. 
When I like when I say the word overcome, right? Like like you are a person who's overcome something. Do you identify with that, or do you just think who's he talking about? When I hear the word overcome, I think, you know, it's like you got over top of it every single time. Like for me, it's like sometimes I dug under that wall or I went away until somebody brought that wall down or did whatever I had to do. This is Shane Koizen. He's a spoken word artist. And in a lot of ways, what he overcame is kind of common because it happens all the time. I think that's one of the things about bullying. It's when you encounter it, like when it's right in front of you, like, I mean, you're going to do whatever you can to sort of escape it. And it's probably why so many people relate to him. He wrote a poem about his experiences being bullied. It's called To This Day. And when he posted an animated version of it online, it went viral. And a few weeks later, he and a friend who plays violin took the poem to the TED stage. When I was a kid... I hid my heart under the bed because my mother said, if you're not careful, someday someone's going to break it. Take it from me, under the bed is not a good hiding spot. I know because I've been shot down so many times, I get altitude sickness just from standing up for myself. But that's what we were told. Stand up for yourself. That's hard to do if you don't know who you are. We were expected to define ourselves at such an early age. And if we didn't do it, others did it for us. Geek, fatty, slut, fag. I'm not the only kid who grew up this way. Surrounded by people who used to say that rhyme about sticks and stones. As if broken bones hurt more than the names we got called, and we got called them all. So we grew up believing no one would ever fall in love with us. That we'd be lonely forever. That we'd never meet someone to make us feel like the sun was something they built for us in their tool shed. So broken heartstrings bled the blues We tried to empty ourselves so we'd feel nothing Don't tell me that hurts less than a broken bone That an ingrown life is something surgeons can cut away That there's no way for it to metastasize, it does She was eight years old Our first day of grade three when she got called ugly We both got moved to the back of class So we'd stop getting bombarded by spitballs But the school halls were a battleground We found ourselves outnumbered day after wretched day We used to stay inside for recess Because outside was worse Outside, we'd have to rehearse running away or learn to stay still like statues, giving no clues that we were there in grade five. They taped a sign to the front of her desk that read, Beware of Dog. When did it start for you? It, it probably started around kindergarten. Like, it started, you know, when, you know, the class found out that, you know, I was being raised by my grandparents, you know. And then, you know, it was just a lot of questions of, like, why don't your parents want you? And it was an innocent thing, like other kids couldn't understand the situation that I was in. And then that developed into something that ultimately became very cruel. Um, and it became a point of, you know, mockery for people. It's like, ah, oh, your parents don't want you. And then it became name-calling. And then, you know, the name-calling became the more violent aspect of what happened. And one more thing you should probably know is that Shane was also overweight. I was a big kid. I've always been a big person. You know, and a lot of times that's all you need is just one little difference, something to set you apart. That's like blood in the water, you know. Um, I was very sensitive. I would cry very easily. You know, something would set me off, like somebody would say something and I'd cry. And then that fed the fire that they were stoking, you know. It was just, so they just sort of kept doing it because it was, I don't know, entertaining to them maybe? I'm not sure. And one particular afternoon... I must have been nine or ten, maybe. An older boy... Like a lightning strike. Just started to beat him. And just a very violent experience. It just felt like it happened for no reason. And later on, when they were in the detention room, Shane turned to the boy and he asked him why. And I, and I remember doing that. And his greatest answer was because... Like, because is able to sum up everything we needed to know. And after that, just the act of going to school became like this daily trauma. I would cry. I would be like, please, just let me stay home from school today. And, you know, my grandmother would, you know, she she would cry too. It was so hard because, you know, there would be both of us crying at the door. And her having to be like, you have to go. You can't 
can't do this. You can't just stay here. Imagine this is your life. Every day of your life where you just, you didn't go out the door. And that's where that terrifying feeling came from of, you're right, I just, I can't let my life be this. Because if I give up right now, that's what my life will be. I'll never walk out the front door. You look back on it now as an adult and, you know, you can kind of process it. But, I mean, as a, as a kid, how did you endure that? I don't know that I necessarily did. Like, I mean, ultimately, I ended up becoming what I hated. My grandparents, uh, when they retired, I think it was in grade nine, they decided, oh, okay, we're going to move. And I thought, yes, finally, I get a chance to go and get to start over. And I start at the new school. And the first day of school, it started all over again. And something in me sort of, you know, changed where I just... I couldn't keep doing it. I couldn't go through three more years of it. And I remember it was probably two weeks into the new school. An incident happened uh, in class and I ended up getting into a quite a violent fight. It's one of those things I don't even really remember it. It just happened so fast. And then being called down to the counselor and, you know, they'd called my grandmother into school. And then the counselor that said, you know, your grandson is a bully. And I laughed. I could not believe those words came out of their mouth. I was like, do you have any idea what I just came out of? Like, do you have any idea? I was just so low. I was at such a desperate, deep, dark space that I said, okay, if this is the coat you want me to wear, this is the coat that I'll wear. Okay, you want me to be a bully? I'll be a bully. I didn't want to hurt other people. I had no reason to. But the more I did it, the more I had to feed that reputation then. And that was my life, and I hated myself. One of the first lines of poetry I can remember writing was in response to a world that demanded I hate myself. From age 15 to 18, I hated myself for becoming the thing that I loathed, a bully. When I was 19, I wrote... I will love myself despite the ease with which I lean toward the opposite. Standing up for yourself doesn't have to mean embracing violence. We weren't the only kids who grew up this way. To this day, kids are still being called names. The classics were, hey stupid, hey spaz. Seems like every school has an arsenal of names getting updated every year. And if a kid breaks into school and no one around chooses to hear it, they make a sound. Uh, they're just background noise from a soundtrack stuck on repeat when people say things like, kids can be cruel. Every school was a big top circus tent. And the pecking order went from acrobats to lion tamers, from clowns to carnies, all of these miles ahead of who we were. We were freaks. Lobster claw boys and bearded ladies. Oddities, juggling depression and loneliness, playing solitaire, spin the bottle, trying to kiss the wounded parts of ourselves and heal. But at night, while the others slept, we kept walking the tightrope. It was practice, and yes, some of us fell. But I want to tell them that all of this is just debris left over when we finally decide to smash all the things we thought we used to be. And if you can't see anything beautiful about yourself, get a better mirror, look a little closer, stare a little longer, because there's something inside you that made you keep trying despite everyone who told you to quit. You built a cast around your broken heart and signed it yourself. You signed it. They were wrong, because maybe you didn't belong to a group or a clique. Maybe they decided to pick you last for basketball or everything. Maybe you used to bring bruises and broken teeth to show and tell but never told. Because how can you hold your ground if everyone around you wants to bury you beneath it? You have to believe that they were wrong. They have to be wrong. Why else would we still be here? We grew up learning to cheer on the underdog because we see ourselves in them. We stem from a root planted in the belief that we are not what we were called. We are not abandoned cars stalled out and sitting empty on some highway. And if in some way we are, don't worry, we only got out to walk and get gas. We are graduating members from the class of we made it. Not the faded echoes of voices crying out, names will never hurt me. Of course, they did. 
But our lives will only ever always continue to be a balancing act that has less to do with pain and more to do with beauty. I wonder what was that thing inside of you that, that you know that made you keep trying? I think it was that want or that desire for love. Like when I say love, I don't mean, you know, like romantic love. I mean just acceptance or friendship even. You know, it was just that that hunger was stronger than anything else. It was just like I need this. I need this in my I know that I need this in my life. I know that this is important without ever having had it. You know, I just instinctively knew that it's like I will not make it through this life intact if I don't have this. That was the driving force behind just to keep going. I mean, so for you, like the the idea that, that it's a balancing act, in a way, that's like a triumph, that your life is a balancing act and everyone else's life is a balancing act. Well, yeah, I think it took a long time to get to that realization. You know, it took a long time to accept that, you know, like, I mean, and to see the way people connect to it, the way people understand it, it just reassures me that I'm not alone in this. There there are thousands of us, you know, millions of us that have, you know, we've experienced this in some way or another. You know, I, I believe everybody's been bullied to a certain extent. Pain is part of this life. It just is. The worst part about pain isn't that it hurts. It's that it's completely normal. We're supposed to feel it. We are meant to endure difficulty for no other reason than it gives us a reference point that allows us to navigate towards something better. Spoken word artist Shane Koizan. On the TED stage, he was accompanied by violinist Hannah Epperson. You can hear his entire poem to this day at ted.npr.org. When was the last time that you heard them? I still hear them very, very regularly, usually at least several times a day. This is Eleanor Longden, and ever since she was in college, she's heard voices. Do they sound as real as, as my voice sounds, you know, like in your headphones right now? Not always. It's very, very changeable, actually. Um, Sometimes, yes, it can feel external, so literally heard through the ears, um, whereas at other times it can, I can hear them from within my head. Some of them are male, some of them sound quite young, some of them have different accents, so they, they don't actually sound like my voice. What do they say? Ooh, anything and everything, really. If Eleanor sounds remarkably calm about all this, it's because to get there, to get to that calm place, she had to go through a kind of hell about 15 years ago. Eleanor picks up the story from the TED stage. day I left home for the first time to go to university was a bright day, brimming with hope and optimism. I'd done well at school, expectations for me were high, and I gleefully entered the student life of lectures, parties... Now, appearances, of course, can be deceptive, and to an extent, this feisty, energetic persona was a veneer. Underneath, I was actually deeply unhappy, insecure, and fundamentally frightened. But I was skilled at hiding it, and as the first semester ended and the second begun, there was no way that anyone could have predicted what was just about to happen. I was leaving a seminar when it started, humming to myself, fumbling with my bag, just as I'd done a hundred times before, when suddenly I heard a voice calmly observe, she is leaving the room. I looked around and there was no one there, but the clarity and decisiveness of the comment was unmistakable. Shaken, I left my books on the stairs and hurried home, and there it was again. She is opening the door. This was the beginning. The voice had arrived. She is going to the library. And the voice persisted. She is going to a lecture. On and on, narrating everything I did in the third person. She is leaving the room. It was neutral, impassive, and even, after a while, strangely companionate and reassuring. Although I did notice that its calm exterior sometimes slipped in that it occasionally mirrored my own unexpressed emotion. 
So, for example, if I was angry and had to hide it, which I often did, being very adept at concealing how I really felt, then the voice would sound frustrated. Otherwise, it was neither sinister nor disturbing. Although even at that point, it was clear that it had something to communicate to me about my emotions, particularly emotions which were remote and inaccessible. You know, I'd initially started off as certainly somebody who had a lot of things that I needed to deal with in my life. As a child, I'd experienced some very traumatic events, particularly sexual abuse. And that was something that, like many survivors of these kind of adversities, I'd worked very, very hard to try and bury the past, but to an extent had virtually buried it alive. And what basically happened was what had initially started off as an experience you know, this commentating voice had suddenly been turned into a symptom. And a few months after she first started hearing them, Eleanor decided to tell a friend about the voices. And her friend panicked. She insisted she go see a doctor, which led to referrals to see more doctors, which led to a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Because by this point, the voices had, what would have started off as one voice was now many and one of the voices actually saying, you know, in this very mocking way, you can't even spell schizophrenia. So what are you going to do about having it? And I think that sort of really summarised it in a way, this sense of complete disbelief, incomprehension, terror, um, and helplessness. Helplessly and hopelessly. I began to retreat into this nightmarish inner world in which the voices were destined to become both my persecutors and my only perceived companions. Two years later, and the deterioration was dramatic. By now, I had the whole frenzied repertoire. Terrifying voices, grotesque visions, bizarre, intractable delusions. And I've been told by my psychiatrist, Eleanor, you'd be better off with cancer because cancer is easier to cure than schizophrenia. I've been diagnosed, drugged and discarded and was by now so tormented by the voices that I attempted to drill a hole in my head in order to get them out. Now, looking back on the wreckage and despair of those years, it seems to me now as if someone died in that place. And yet someone else was saved. A broken and haunted person began that journey, but the person who emerged was a survivor and would ultimately grow into the person I was destined to be. In a moment, we'll find out how Eleanor Longdon essentially overcame her diagnosis of schizophrenia and moved on. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the American Jewish World Service, working together for more than 30 years to build a more just and equitable world. Learn more at ajws.org. People are obsessed with zombies, whether it's watching them be hacked away on TV or planning for the apocalypse. So this week on Throughline, we're exploring the origins of the zombie. And just like the movies, it's a dark one. Throughline from NPR, the podcast where we go back in time to understand the present. (laughs) (laughs) Zombies don't laugh like that, though. No, that's true. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, stories about people who overcame huge obstacles in their lives. And we're picking up the story of Eleanor Longdon, who, who basically started to go crazy when she was a student at the University of Leeds in Britain. She was hearing these terrifying voices in her head, and she was eventually diagnosed with schizophrenia. Now, she could have spent the rest of her life in institutions, but slowly, very slowly, she started to get help. My psychiatrist at that time gave me a leaflet for an organization in the UK called the Hearing Voices Network. And it was electrifying because what this leaflet was saying, firstly, was that many people hear voices as a response to stress or trauma and that voices can be seen as messages and metaphors for underlying difficulties in people's lives. 
Wow. And that process just began, that, that idea that maybe I, I just need to embrace those voices and work with them. Yeah. And what I began to realize is that I hadn't gone mad. I'd been driven mad by trauma. And rather than seeing the things like voices as symptoms, I began to try and see them in more sort of compassionate ways. So as, as survival strategies, as adaptations, as sane reactions to insane circumstances. But what do you think it was that, that enabled you to, to overcome that? I mean, to sort of say, you know, I'm a survivor. I'm going to make this work. I'm going to live with this. I mean, f for a lot of people, that would be impossible. Mm. The way I think at the beginning that I negotiated that was I'd read uh, Touching the Void by Joe Simpson, who's a mountaineer who basically was involved in a, a very bad accident and ended up at the bottom of a crevasse with a broken knee. And he had to make his way back to base camp. And he describes this process of breaking that journey down into tiny stages because he felt that if he really acknowledged the enormity of the task ahead that he would simply sink to his knees in the snow and give up. So he thought, in the next half hour, I'm going to get to the end of that crevasse. And then when I get to the end of this crevasse, then I'm going to get to that rock. And really, that's what I had to do. So it might be simply, rather than lying in bed all day, listening to the voices, I'm going to get up for 10 minutes and go and talk to my mum in the kitchen. And that might be the day's task. Ultimately, I would gather together my shattered self, each fragment represented by a different voice, gradually withdraw from all my medication and return to psychiatry, only this time from the other side. Ten years after the voice first came, I finally graduated, this time with the highest degree in psychology the university had ever given, and one year later, the highest master's. She always says, isn't bad for a mad woman. In fact, one of the voices actually dictated the answers during an exam, which technically possibly counts as cheating. And <laughs> I worked in mental health services, I spoke at conferences, I published book chapters and academic articles, and I argued, and continue to do so, the relevance of the following concept that an important question in psychiatry shouldn't be what's wrong with you, but rather, what's happened to you. And all the while, I listened to my voices, with whom I'd finally learned to live with peace and respect, and which in turn reflected a growing sense of compassion, acceptance and respect towards myself. So how do you do that? How do you make space for them in your life? I mean, the, the way I understand my voices now is very much as, as parts of me, essentially. Um, so say recently I had to submit a journal article to sort of course quite prestigious journal and feeling very, very anxious about that. And was at that point, you know, your fingers hovering over the button and you're about to press submit. And one of the voices said, don't. And a few years ago, my reaction to that would probably have either to become very angry with the voice or to become very fearful and take it that that word don't completely at face value. Whereas now, what I would say to it first was maybe something like, why? And then the voice said, you know, something along the lines of, oh, you know, it, it won't be good enough and people might be critical of it. So how I would deal with that now is simply, you know, say, respond to the voice, something like, um, you sound really anxious and fearful, you know, I'm really sorry you feel like that. But don't worry, because nobody's perfect, and if there are mistakes in it, it's fine. So do you see what I mean? It's sort of like using the, the content of the voices in quite a healing and restorative way. But, but I mean, if someone were to, were to say, okay, you're going to wake up tomorrow, and you are mm. never going to hear those voices <laughs> again, what would you think? I sometimes feel I should insure my voices, because if they ever do ever go, I'd be out of a job. I sort of my professional <laughs> livelihood depends on them. Um <laughs> I would miss them if they went, which is an extraordinary admission in some ways because I am somebody who at one point would literally rather have died than live with my voices. The human animal is a unique being, endowed with an instinctual capacity to heal and the intellectual spirit to harness this innate capacity. We don't have to live our lives forever defined by the damaging things that have happened to us. We are unique we are irreplaceable, 
what lies within us can never be truly colonized, contorted, or taken away. The light never goes out. As a very wonderful doctor once said to me, "Don't tell me what other people have told you about yourself. Tell me about you." Thank you. Eleanor Longden. She's planning to get her PhD in psychology from the University of Leeds next summer. Her talk's called "The Voices in My Head," and you can hear the whole thing at TED.com. So imagine your whole life planned out for you, against your will, from the moment you're born. That's how Kikenya and Taya's life began in a Maasai village in Kenya. When I was five years old, I found out that I was engaged to be married as soon as I reached puberty. My mother, my grandmother, my aunties—they constantly reminded me that your husband just passed by. <laughs> cool, yeah. Um, and everything I had to do from that moment was to prepare me to be a perfect woman at age 12. My day started at five in the morning, milking the cows, sweeping the house, cooking for my siblings, collecting water. Firewood. I did everything that I needed to do to become a perfect wife. But that life never really seemed like the right fit for Kikenya. She didn't want to be just the perfect wife. She wanted something more than that. When I went to school, I had a dream. I wanted to become a teacher. I worked hard in school, but when I was in eighth grade, in our tradition. There is a ceremony that girls have to undergo to become women, and it's a rite of passage to womanhood. This was the crossroad. Once I go through this tradition, I was going to become a wife. Well, my dream of becoming a teacher will not come to pass. I had to come up with a plan to figure these things out. I talked to my father. I did something that most girls have never done. I told my father, "I will only go through this ceremony if you let me go back to school." The reason why, if I ran away, my father will have a stigma.、Uh, people will be calling him the father of that girl who didn't go through the ceremony. It was a shameful thing for him to carry the rest of his life. So he figured out. Well, he said, "Okay, we'll go to. You'll go to school after the ceremony." Okay, now this next part of Kikenya's TED Talk, as you mentioned, is a bit hard to listen to, but it's also really important because you have to know what she went through to understand how amazing her story actually is. And the day before the actual ceremony happens, we were dancing, having excitement, and through the, all the night we, we did not sleep. The actual day came. And we walk out of the house that we were dancing. As we dance and dance, we walked out to the courtyard, and there were a bunch of people waiting. They were all in a circle. And as we dance and dance, and we approached this circle of women—men, women, children—everybody was there. There was a woman sitting in the middle of it, and this woman was waiting to hold us. I was the first. There were my sisters and a couple of other girls. And as I approached her. She looked at me, and I sat down. And I sat down, and I opened my legs. As I opened my leg, another woman came, and this woman was carrying a knife. And as she carried the knife, she walked toward me, and she held my clitoris, and she cut it off. After bleeding for a while, I fainted thereafter. It's something that so many girls. I'm lucky; I never died. But many die. I was lucky because one, also, my mom did something that most women don't do. Three days later, after everybody has left the home, my mom went and brought a nurse. We were taken care of. Three weeks later, I was healed and I was back in high school. I was so determined to be a teacher now, so that I can make a difference in my family. It would be a few years until Kikenya would actually get her chance, and it happened when she met an older boy in the village, who'd been to university in the U.S. And Kikenya convinced him to help her apply to Randolph-Macon Women's College in Virginia. That was a long shot, but she got in. 
it was a thing that you, you don't even imagine it will ever happen. But I did um, get the admission to Randolph Macon uh, Women's College then. And it was like, wow, it's real. It's actually happening. <laughs> I'm queen. And, and you knew nothing about this place, right? You you do absolutely nothing. It was just it was in America, <laughs> somewhere that I didn't know I was. And I I couldn't come uh, without the support of the village because I needed to raise money to buy the air ticket. I got a scholarship, but I needed to get myself here. But I needed the support of the village. And here again. When, when the men had and the people had that a woman had gotten us an opportunity to go to school, they said, what a lost opportunity. This should have been given to a boy. We can't do this. And in the village also there's one chief or an elder who has, if he says yes, everybody will follow him. So I went to him very early in the morning as the sun rises. The first thing he sees when he wakes, opens his door, he's, it's me. My child, what are you doing here? Well, Dad, I need help. Can you support me to go to America? I promised him that I'll be the best girl. I will come back. Anything they wanted after that, I will do it for them. Did you feel the weight of your village on your shoulders? Like you had to, you had to succeed? I think for me it was more about I wanted to do something for people in my village. So did you know what that was going to be? I never knew what it was going to be, but I knew that the life especially women were living is not the right one. I felt that I had to be the gate to really bring change to the way women live and the way girls are seen and I didn't know how, but I I just wanted to do something. During that moment while I was here, I discovered a lot, a lot of things. I learned that that ceremony that I went through when I was 13 years old, it was called female genital mutilation. I learned that it was against the law in Kenya. I learned that I did not have to trade part of my body to get an education. I had a right. Those things made me angry. This was all obviously incredibly upsetting. I mean, imagine learning all these things after the fact. And Kenya initially just thought, how could it be? But then she started to think, she started to wonder whether she could take that knowledge, that information, and give it to the girls in her village. As I went back, I started talking to the men to the village and and mothers, and I said, I want to give back the way I had promised you that I would come back and help you. What do you need? As I speak to the women, they told me, you know what we need? We really need a school for girls, because there had not been any school for girls. And the reason they wanted the school for girls is because when a girl is raped when she's walking to school, the mother is blamed for that. And she's punished. She's beaten. They said we wanted to put our girls in a safe place. As we moved, and I went to talk to the fathers, the fathers, of course, you can imagine what they said. We want a school for boys. And I said, well... There are a couple of men from my village who have got an education. Why can they build a school for boys and now build a school for girls? That made sense, and they agreed. <laughs> and I told them, I wanted them to show me a sign of commitment. And they did. They donated land where we built the girls' school we have. So a few years ago, the chief of her village told Kenya, there's no need to educate girls because they are for marriage. And today... He's a member of the school's board. It's called the Kikenya Center for Excellence, and it's open to girls from age 8 to 14. And right now, about 150 girls attend. And not a single girl was mutilated or married off early. In fact, Kikenya worked with the tribal elders to make sure they stopped circumcising girls. And the practice ended. Do you think those girls who are now 14 years old at the school that you founded that are going to go off to high school they may have the same experience you have. They may go to the U.S. or to Europe to go to university. Those girls, um, they will go anywhere in the world. They're leaders already. They're not afraid. As I tell them always, there's no limit to what they can achieve. And so some will go to America, some will go to Europe, some will go to India, whatever they go to, they're ready. And I tell the girls that I have in my school that 
yes you might be orphaned you might be disabled or you might be doesn't matter your background what matters is what you take from the opportunity you're given where you go with that i want to challenge you today that you be the first because people will follow you be bold stand up be fearless be confident move out because as you change your world you're going to change your community you're going to change your country and think about that if you do that and i do that aren't we going to create a better future for our children for your children for our grandchildren and we will live in a very peaceful world thank you very much Kenya and Taya. By the way, she never did marry that boy from the village. She did get married to another Kenyan man who she met in the U.S. You should check out her full talk at ted.npr.org. I don't believe, I don't believe I'd have made it up the mountain. I don't believe, I don't believe I'd have climbed so high. I don't believe, I don't believe I'd have made it up the mountain Without the fire burning on the my behind Hey, thanks for listening to our show on Overcoming this week. If you missed any of it or you want to hear more or you want to find out more about who's on it, you can visit ted.npr.org. You can also find many more TED Talks at ted.com, and you can download this entire program through iTunes or through the NPR smartphone app. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.